Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. chapter 1, and up until this point, as you're looking for Hosea chapter 1, I just wanted to remind you of a few things. So far, we've learned that God tells Hosea, this isn't something that Hosea does on his own, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. It's a strong command, but he does so because as Hosea will relate to this woman, it will depict what God is relating himself to with Israel. It's what... in Theological terms sometimes it's called enactment prophecy. Uh, Hosea is doing in relation with the prostitute how God is acting upon Israel. And in these past few weeks, we've been introduced to four names that Hosea has as far as, well, three of them are literal children um, by Hosea with this woman. And one of them is Jezreel, which in the Hebrew means to, to scatter or to, to sow, but Geographically, as we learn, this represents symbolically a place of bloodshed, a place of destruction. As Pastor Jonathan uh, mentioned to us, it would be like in our context today, naming your, your son or your daughter Pearl Harbor or 9-11. That's the, the understanding here of Jezreel. We've learned that uh, another daughter that's born to Hosea is no mercy, also a representation of God's judgment upon his people, which is that God would show no mercy. He would remove his mercy from Israel. And then last week in verse 9, we learned two more names, one literally by a child, which is Loamni, or not my people. Again, here, God letting Israel know they are not his people. He is not their king. And then he furthers this at the end of uh, verse 9, not really seen in our English Bibles, but in the original language, you clearly see that God uses his name. I am not your I am. I am not your uh, Yahweh. And, and so he's letting the people know that not only is he not their king or their ruler, but in a sense, he's also not their God. And we explain what that means. It's not a divorce, but it literally is language that God is using to say, I will give my justice to these people because of their rebellious ways. And yet today, dramatically, the passage shifts. It goes from verses 2 to 9, judgment, 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 well-deserved judgment, and out of nowhere, God, it almost seems like he just changes his mind. And so as we're reading these passages and as you're going through the book, what I want you to keep in mind and I want you to wrestle with this tension that God is going from judgment language to hope language, and you'll see next week right back into Judgment language, and the mistake is for us to read these passages and think of God as some big giant human who, like us, uh, maybe God woke up in a bad mood in verses 2 to 9. Maybe he was driving around the 290 uh, heavenly highway and someone cut him off, and so he gets mad and says, all right, Israel, you're going to have it. And then later on, he decides to show kindness like we'll see in these passages, and then he has another bad day. This is not how God 
is working. God is not like us. He's not some emotional being that's just acting upon the things that the people do. But I do want you to have this in mind because it seems as though God is going from angry to righteous, from angry to, to happy, or from, from, from justice to mercy and loving, and this will occur throughout the whole book. And we're going to see today why God does this. But let's read verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 2, verse 1, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. If you're going to put a title to this, I'm just simply calling it the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. God is true. He is faithful even when Israel is not faithful. And we'll see that in these passages. And in these passages, there are six restorations that God will do in a future to Israel. And in these six restorations, we also see that God will reverse the four names. The names where he says, I am not your I am. Uh, you are just realm, meaning destruction. You are not my people and you have not received mercy. In these passages, the names are reversed. They, they take on a new meaning. Verse 10 begins in the Hebrew, common in prophetic literature. I'll give you the Hebrew term, vayahe, which literally just means it shall be. Uh, the ESV here translates it yet because it's making a contrast between verse 9 and verse 10 where verse 9 ends in you are not my people and yet God will consider his people his people. And so it's the reason why the ESV uses this yet translation. But the emphasis here that I want you to think about is that normally when we see this and it shall be verb, usually in context the name of God is followed by it. So it shall be that the Lord will do this, or it shall be that the Lord has said this. And, and, and so normally the Lord, or Yahweh, or Adonai, or Elohim language is found in this passage, and yet here, there is no mention of God. There is no, and it shall be that the Lord will do, or that the Lord will establish, which leads some scholars to suggest that verses 2 to 9 is God's angry language, but here, these passages, it's Hosea's own preaching. Hosea has decided to change the message of the language, and now Hosea is giving us some positive, encouraging message in the midst of God's message, and obviously, this is not true. One we know this because Second uh, Peter 2.1 lets us know no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But even if we did not have the New Testament, I want you to see that on these passages, clearly it's not Hosea that's doing the work, it's God. It's God who's being faithful. So even if we did not have the New Testament, we know these are the words of God and not the words of Hosea because of what God is doing here. So we see right at the beginning, the first thing God does is he says, he will number the children of Israel and they shall be like the sand of the sea. This is the first restoration, that Israel will be great again. 
They will be great in number. Again, the term sand of the sea is a, an expression. Uh, think of it as a saying. Like in our culture, if I were to say, um, I'm between a, a rock and a hard place. We know that I'm not literally between a rock and a hard place, but everyone here knows what that expression or that saying means. It means that I'm in the middle of a tough decision. When we find in Scripture this expression, this saying that was culturally relevant to the Israelites, sand of the sea, it simply means that they will be large in number or great in number. It's an expression. It's a saying like we have sayings in our culture and and and. In relation to Israel, this is used in other passages in Scripture, but in relation to Israel, it always means just large in number. So, for example, 2 Samuel 17, 11, when Absalom is advised on how he should fight his father David and his army, he's told, gather a large army from Dan all the way to Beersheba, and they shall be like the sand of the sea. It's not literally they're going to be sand and sea, but figuratively, they're going to be a big army, and maybe this big army is big enough to dethrone David's army. First King 4.20, in description of Judah and Israel, we see the language again. They shall be like the sand of the sea, meaning there will be a large nation. Or in Isaiah 10.22, when Israel itself is described as the, the sand of the sea, they are a large nation even in exile, but the passage lets us know only a remnant or a few of this many will return back to the promised land from exile. So here in this passage, what we're seeing is that God is saying by using the sand of the sea language that he will restore Israel and they will be great in number. Now, for the Israelites, this is right away a message of hope because during this time, in Hosea's time specifically, the Assyrian Empire is a large empire. And in comparison to Israel and the way Israel views itself and compared to Assyria, it's not even close. Assyria is much stronger. Assyria is much larger, not just in weaponry and, 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 in, and in some ways technology or the technological advancements that existed in those days, but they are much larger in number itself. Some historians and commentators suggest that just the capital alone of Assyria, which is Nineveh, was larger than the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, which is Judah, put together. And now, remember, as we learned already, Hosea isn't prophesying to both Judah and the northern kingdom. His message is to the northern kingdom. That is, the justice that will fall upon Israel will be in the northern kingdom. So, so think about this. You got just one capital that's larger than your whole population, and yet God will use Assyria as an instrument, as a country, as an empire to attack the Israelites, to establish his justice, to put it another way. I'm from El Salvador, or my parents are from there, I was born here, but I consider myself Salvadorian. The population approximately of El Salvador is about 6 million people, although that might be reducing with the caravan that's going on right now, um, but approximately 6 million. New York City itself, just the city, not the state or other states, just the city itself is 8 million people. So if the United States were to decide to attack El Salvador and El Salvador, having this notion, these numbers in mind, can you imagine the fear? 
Can you imagine the, the, how, how, how the people of Israel feel in, in accordance just by number with Assyria? So when they hear this language, great like the sand of the sea, it's hope to their ears. Oh, we're going to be large again. God's going to restore us in number again. And yet, while that's beautiful and all, God's emphasis isn't on the restoration of a population. But what God is doing here is he's reminding Israel of his faithful covenant. God is reminding Israel by using Genesis language of his faithful covenant. For those of you that have grown up in church, you'll remember God calls Abraham. And what does he say? Look at the skies in the heaven or the stars in the heaven and count them. That's how great your descendancy will be. He tells them, look at the sand of the sea and count them. That's how great your generations will be. In other words, by God using this Genesis language, he's reminding Israel, not of their greatness, but of his. Reminding them of his faithful covenant that if God has promised it, he will complete it. He's promised it to Abraham that, that their descendancy will continue. It would go on. And in, and in Genesis twenty two seventeen, we see it again. God promises that Israel will be as large as the sand of the sea and furthermore, that they will conquer their enemies. God is reminding Israel, I've established a covenant with you. And more than just a restoration of size and number, the emphasis here is that even when Israel is unfaithful, as we've already seen they are, God is faithful. The emphasis in this passage isn't you're going to be a bunch of people is no. We already see it. it it's, it's being introduced to us. You will be my people. Why? Because Israel has done something to deserve it? No, because God is faithful to his covenant. So when we read this tension... What we're seeing right off the get-go is God, while establishing justice because he's faithful to the covenant, you break the covenant, justice falls upon you. At the same time, will show mercy, not because of something Israel's done, but because he's faithful to his covenant. If he's promised it, he will finish it. And we see this further in verse 11, where, uh, it's, I'm sorry, in verse 10, where it says, in the place where they were called not my people, they will be called children of the living God. This is the second restoration. God will once again call Israel his children. He will be their father. So the first one is God will make them great in number or a great nation once again. The second restoration is they will be his. They will be his children. Grammatically here, this phrase, not my people uh, can be translated instead of uh, not my people, you will be called children of the living God. Or it could just simply mean that the place itself refers to Israel, where Israel in Israel was called not my people. Now here, God will call them children of the living God. The emphasis is not on the place. Our job as readers is not to try to figure out where is this place going to happen or where is this location. The emphasis is on the name change. Where God had said in verse 9, I am not your I am. Here now he says, I am your I am. You are my children. You see in the second restoration that one of the names is being reversed. Israel is his again. They are his children. This phrase, children of the living God, 
in all of the Old Testament is only found in Hosea. No one else uses this term, children of the living God. And the term itself, living God, is only found three other times in the Old Testament. Joshua 3.10, Psalm 42.3, and Psalm 84.3. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why use the term children of the living God? And this again goes because it's contrasting in some ways what's already been said. Remember Hosea chapter 1, verse 2? Marry a prostitute and have children of whoredom with her? Up until these verses, Israel has been identified as a children of whoredom. And, and the passage lets us know why. Because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That is, Israel was inheriting children of whoredom because... Israel itself was engaging in idol worship. They're worshiping other idols. They're, they're following other idols. And here God is saying, in, it, it will be in a future time where the identification of Israel as idol worshipers will no longer be. They will be children of the living God. This is a contrast from God to idols. Where God is the living God, idols are dead. They are not alive. Where God is living, active, and powerful to give justice and redeem and save his people, idols are not. Isaiah describes them as deaf and muted, needed to be created and sculptured by human hands. God is a living God. Idols are dead. Not only is this an emphasis on that idea, but it's also giving us the notion, and Hosea here is already alluding to something. God will destroy Baal and all the Baals. God will destroy all the idol worship. In Hosea 2, 17, God says, I will remove the names of Baal from the mouth, from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. This living God will destroy these idols. Make no mistake about it. God will prove himself not only that he is a living God, but that he is more powerful than these dead idols. And here I want to pause to reflect on God's goodness and faithfulness in our lives. That God in our lives is much more powerful than money and bank accounts and careers and anything that we might want to leave God and put our trust in something else. God is much more greater than those dead things. He's much bigger than those dead things. And furthermore, God is bigger even than our sin which leads to death. He is the living God who can rescue us and save us. And this does not produce a prideful Christian life. It produces a life of repentance and humbleness to God that says, Thank you, God, for your mercy and for your faithfulness. And we are, when we realize this, our response isn't freedom to sin but rather freedom to run from sin and run towards this faithful God. He is the living God. He's alive and powerful to save. So the question for us is, where is your trust in this morning? In dead things or in the living God? I hope and pray 
It's in the living God. God will restore in this second restoration Israel as his children. But not only that, we see in verse 3 a third restoration. I'm sorry, verse 11, a third restoration. Here's what verse 11 says. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. In my translation, I did it this way because of the poetic language. Judah will be gathered, and the Israelites will be together. Now remember, the idea is the same. God's going to gather them. They will be one nation. But the point here and the emphasis of this verse is highly important because as already mentioned, Hosea is prophesying to who? The northern kingdom. Judah is not in mind here. This prophecy is not going to be heard by the southern kingdom unless the northern kingdom think that they are true Israel. God reminds them, you're not true Israel. God reminds them, you and you alone are not my chosen people. Judah is included in this. That is that when God made his covenant with Abraham, all Jews were included in it. It's not, oh, yeah, the northern kingdom's right. They're the only people. No, God says, I will gather you back. And in this context, that seems impossible. In this context, this cannot be. It cannot happen. In our day, the best example I could give is like telling a South Korean and a North Korean, you will be gathered together as one nation again. In their mind, that is impossible. Different government structures, different worldviews, different political systems. I mean, it's just night and day. In this context, it's impossible. And yet God says, I will gather them. They will be one nation again. It, this is further seen here by the phrase, they shall appoint for themselves one head. Now, this is important here. The use of head versus the normal term, you would expect here to find one king, one melech. But the Hebrew uses head, one head. Why does Hosea and really God in his divine sovereignty and wisdom do this? Because up until this point, all the kings have been evil. All the kings have been wicked. In fact, part of the division between the north and the south is due, and the south, I'm sorry, is due to bad rulership. It's due to bad monarchy. This is the reason why the division exists. So, 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 so God in his wisdom uses the term head. They together, that is the point. Israel and Judah together in unity as one nation will appoint one head. Now for those Christ-centered preachers or messianic searchers that are always trying to find Jesus and everything, this is not referring to Jesus. I know that Paul in the New Testament uses language where Christ is the head of the church, but this is not a messianic passage. And we know this because the passage tells us they, the humans, Israel and Judah, will appoint a head. They will appoint a leader. And in the New Testament, clearly we know I don't appoint Christ as the head of the church. God does that. I don't tell Christ what to do. I don't tell God what to do. God does that on his own. This is not an allusion to Christ. This is specifically talking about the northern and the south will be united. God will do it, and they will be under a new leadership. Very different from the one that they've previously had. This is the fourth restoration that God will restore unity in Israel. Sorry, the third one. Here's the fourth one. Just to recap, number one, 
God will make their name great again. Two, they will be his children again. Three, they will be restored back into unity again. And here's the fourth one. God will restore Israel as a blessed people again. Look at the end of verse 11. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now, here, the point that I want to make is that given the context of verse 11 at the beginning, the setting is already in Israel. They are here. This isn't referring to they will go up from the land, meaning that they will come back from exile and return to Israel. For as already seen, they've been united in Israel. They've established a head in Israel. So this is not some prophetic illusion that Israel will return from captivity. Although, if we read the Bible, we know that they will. They will be held captive. And then they will return. But Hosea is not prophesying about this. Rather, this term, they shall go up from the land, is to be better understood in connection with the next clause, which is, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. That clause itself is explaining what it means to go up from the land. And here, the name of Jezreel helps us understand this. Remember, the name literally in the Hebrew means to scatter, to sow. And in Hosea chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, that meant that what was scattered, or the notion that the Israelites had, is that Jezreel is a valley of destruction. What was scattered is destruction. The fruit that was produced in this valley is destruction. Yet here, God will restore Israel black, back, I'm sorry, to a place of blessing, to, to a place of prosperity again great shall be the day of Jezreel in other words God will make the land grow again God will make the land give fruit again God in his faithfulness will restore the land back to productivity to fruitfulness it is God and God alone that is doing that in this fourth restoration God is the one growing the land. Great will be the day of Jezreel. Here, a reversal in the name, wherein in the early parts of Hosea, the name means destruction and is identified with bloodshed. Now here, in a future time, Jezreel will be a valley of peace. It'll be a valley of productivity. The scattered will give fruit. The land will be caused up to grow again. So there are four restorations. The final two are found in chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. Say is an imperative command. That is, that God is commanding Israel to say to their brothers, to their sisters, reminding them, you are my brother. You are my people, brothers, sisters. You have received mercy. Mercy, And here, it could be Israel talking to Judah. It could be Israel talking amongst itself. Or it could even include non-Jewish people in that future day. But again, the emphasis here is not specifically who or what it means by brother and sister, but rather that the names have been reversed. Where in verse 9, we see lo amni. Now here, the name is reversed to amni. 
where they were once identified as not my people, now they will be identified as my people again, where they had previously been identified as not having mercy or not having pity or not having love. Now here they will receive mercy. They will receive love. God will have compassion on his people. The names have been reversed. God is showing his faithfulness. And just like God is faithful to Israel and can change their identity when he saves us, you best believe that when the Bible says, behold, we are a new creation, the old has passed, the new has come, it is so. We are a new creation. We have been redeemed and saved from the bondage of sin and death. We ought not to doubt that truth. It happens. It's real. God does save us. God does restore us. Now, I've gone through the verses, but I'm not done. The question is, why? Why does God restore Israel? Why does God become faithful to Israel? See, this is the tension we could either assume, well, God is changing his mind, which I would argue is not the case because other passages in Scripture specifically tell us God is not like a man to change his mind. So it's not that. Why is God restoring Israel? Why is God being faithful? And I think the best way to answer that is by reading the passage itself. I'm going to read it this time from verse 9. So you can notice the shift happen so effortlessly. I'm going to read it from verse 9. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. What is going on here? We'll notice the shift. Not my people, yet they will be great in number. And again, as already stated, the emphasis is because God is referencing Genesis. He's doing it because he's faithful to his promise even when Israel is not. Notice what the passage does not say. It does not say, and Israel offered an offering to the Lord. It does not say, and Israel cried out to the Lord until they could no longer be heard in their vocal cords, and then God acted. It says, not my people, yet they will be a great nation. Why? Because of his faithful covenant. In other words, what I want you to see is that God's faithfulness has nothing to do with something that Israel could initiate. So what does that mean in our Christian culture? Stop trying to think that you can bend God's arm into doing something. We can't. I can't. You can't. We can't manipulate God into doing something. God remains faithful despite of our unfaithfulness. That is good news. 
And yet, too often, Christians are trying to earn God. If you're not convinced, let's review these verses. Verse 10, again, God quotes Genesis as a reminder of his faithfulness. It has nothing to do with what Israel has done. I cannot earn God. I can't pray hard enough to get God to save me. God does so because he is faithful. If you're not convinced, verse 11, he will gather Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah don't sign a peace treaty. Israel doesn't call Judah and go, hey, you know what? We've had this long enough. Let's, let's gather together and let's just become one nation again. No, God gathers them. It is clear. God is the one who unites them, who brings them together. They don't apologize to one another. What does that say about our efforts of social justice and racial reconciliation? Maybe instead of trying to do a bunch of methods and a bunch of marches, I'm not against that, but at the end of the day, we got to put our trust that God and only God can unite two different cultures and two different worldviews and two different social structures. You're not convinced? Verse 11b, he's the one that causes the land to sprout up again. Does Israel work the land? Does Israel plant new seed? Does Israel go out to the land of Jezreel and water it and produce it to grow? No. God does the growing. He grows the land. Many of us in our modern-day context want to give God money so that he could bless us. I'll give my offering if God gives me a better job or a better car, or maybe if I buy the pastor a jet, then God will bless me, and I'll be able to get a house or a mansion. Or I'll, And we have this view of God. Recently, uh, I just saw a video that a pastor uh, in our Hispanic culture said, uh, two things you should bring to the church, a Bible and a checkbook. That's what? One, to hear the word of God, and the other to give to God so that he could bless you. No, I can't twist God's arm with my checkbook. God will be faithful despite of my giving or not. And this does not mean that it excuses us from not giving. It's quite the opposite. Because God has been faithful, it produces in my heart a desire to want to give to God. Because I've had food on my table this week, I want to come into the congregation and say, thank you, Lord. Here is an evidence of, on my part, that I trust you. And we give to God on the basis of that and not because, well, if I don't, maybe this week my kids won't eat. That's not how the function of giving works in Scripture. So Israel does nothing to produce the land to grow. One final evidence in chapter 2, he calls them my people. Israel doesn't call themselves the people of God. God does that. Israel doesn't give themselves mercy. God does that. Now, if you're still not convinced, then let's look at the grammar. These passages that I've just mentioned are tied together by four verbs in relation from Israel to God. In verse 10, the emphasis of Israel being great in number are emphasized by two verbs. They, will, they cannot be numbered and they cannot be measured. That is, they'll be so great, they can't be numbered, they can't be measured. You can just jot this as a mental note. They're in the nifal stem. In verse 11, when it says, he will gather Israel and Judah, that verb itself is in the nifal stem. In verse 11b, when it says, the land will go up or the land will rise up, that verb stem is in the cal stem. And again, reminding us that God is the one that sprouts up the blessing. And in verse 12, 
they will receive mercy here, ruama, not in noun form, but in verb form, which is awkward if you know your grammar uh, as far as naming a name in verb form, but here in verb form in the pu'al. So let me just tell you what this means. The nifal and the call found in verses 10 and 11 always stand out in the Hebrew grammar because by grammar definition, they mean that an action is made without an outside cause. That is that God is restoring Israel. He is making them a great number. He is gathering them again together. He is causing the land to grow up in the nifal and the call, not because Israel has caused it, but because as the verb works, the action takes place without an outside cause. If you're still not convinced, the pu'al, a deviation from the P.O. verb stem, and you can Google this or ask Jonathan afterwards for, for verification, but here in the grammar, it's the opposite. An action is received by an outside cause, always grammatically. That is, it's not Israel giving themselves mercy. God is the one who gives mercy mercy. What is the lesson of these passages? God remains faithful even when I am not faithful. That is not a license to sin because we cannot forgive and we, I'm sorry, we cannot forget what's already been said in these passages. If I think this is a license to sin and if I think that my interpretation of election and predestination is, well, if God elect me, I can do whatever I want and not receive justice, it's a wrong interpretation. God will give justice if we continue to sin. And whether we like it or not, and despite of us, he will humble us. And he will restore us into repentance. But God is faithful even when I am not. And I can't force God into faithfulness. That's just who he is. And that gives us hope and joy, and comfort, and if that does not lead you into a repentant life, I don't know what else can. If that doesn't lead you to want to pursue this loving, gracious God more, I don't know what else can. But we must know that just like God is faithful to provide justice that leads to repentance, he's also faithful to provide grace that restores us back into right relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because it's not on the will of man that you save us, but it is on your will. It is not by the action of man that you restore us or guide us or protect us, but it is by your will. And I thank you, Lord, because you are faithful even when we are not, because you are faithful even when we want to forget you and when we want to live a different life far from you. And I pray that even here today, you would lead us into a life of humbleness and repentance towards you so that we can live in thankfulness and gratitude and in worship of you. In Jesus' name, we thank you. And we all say, amen.